children age four to grade five are now free to go to the Fellowship Hall for Children's Church. I um, always approach John's gospel with a little bit of trepidation. The Jesus of the other gospels speaks in, in ways that certainly require our attention and interpretation, but that Jesus also speaks in ways that sound familiar to us. Um, Jesus sounds more or less like the disciples and the other characters in the gospels. But John's Jesus... Um, John's Jesus has this tendency to talk in circles. By that, I don't mean John's Jesus is incoherent or superficial in the manner of, a, let's say, a freshman essay writer uh, spitting out redundancies and rehashings in order to meet the required word count. Those of you who can recall your first year of high school and or college uh, think know what I'm talking about. No, Jesus speaks in the kinds of circles that spiral down, kind of like a theological drill, tugging the reader ever more deeply and through a multitude of meanings, like digging in your garden and then discovering a note telling you to keep on digging and then finding another note telling you to keep on digging and then another and another and another until you finally, you hope, someday uh, reach the treasure that was waiting always just a little bit further down. I once had this seminary professor uh, who was a John scholar. He was a young man, but was uh, prematurely gray and had that slightly unfocused look of the love struck. He delighted in John's Jesus and had given himself over to the pursuit of every last layer of meaning and did his best to call us to follow him down the exegetical rabbit hole. I didn't dare. I saw the look on his face, the bags under his eyes, his pasty complexion. He'd clearly gone too far and was slowly slipping away. In an earlier time, we might have said that he had transcended this earthly plane. Some wise guy once said that Jesus's, uh, John's Jesus seemed to, to walk just a few inches off the ground. And if that's so, then my professor was hovering along right behind him. And that's what makes me tremble a bit whenever the lectionary reading is from John's Gospel. I never feel as though I can adequately capture what John's Jesus is, is saying for every aha moment, there remain many more layers to be discovered, like, like entering a maze and feeling the need to get through it in 20 minutes or so and quickly getting lost and so feeling tempted to just turn around and go back the way I came. But here I'm speaking in riddles myself. It's catching this talking in circles business. So let's get on with it, shall we? Our text for today... Our text for today from John's Gospel doesn't so much mix metaphors as pile them one on top of the other. There's the gate, the gatekeeper, the shepherd, the sheep, the strangers, thieves, and bandits. No wonder, as John says, the disciples did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus clarifies. He is the gate. Those who came before him are thieves and bandits. The sheep did not listen to the thieves and bandits. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, do you really suppose the disciples were any less confused now than they were earlier? Maybe the key here is perspective. Um, maybe we need to step away from the metaphor and look at it from a distance. Maybe it's hard to decipher because 
we're standing too close. Maybe it's like one of those optical illusions where you need to stare at it while simultaneously pushing it away until it suddenly pops into view in all its 3D clarity. So, let's try that. Jesus is fresh from healing the man born blind. And then the subsequent debate he had with the Pharisees about that healing. The miracle completely stumped the Pharisees. Um, they had Jesus pegged as a troublemaker, a rabble-rouser, and a heretic, making claims that he had no business claim making. Um, and then Jesus went and healed the man born blind, and as I said, the Pharisees were stumped. How could someone so wrong do something so right? Now, some people, when they, when they witness something that calls their beliefs into questions, they open their minds a bit, and they try to find a way to accommodate what they've witnessed even if that means making adjustments in their beliefs. Others, confronted by the same perplexing event, dig in their heels and try to explain it away, to ignore it, and maybe even deny that it ever happened in the first place. Uh, these are the folks who, in Stephen Colbert's words, prefer truthiness to the truth. They cling to what sounds right, what makes them feel good, what feels right, what they've heard is true, and tend to ignore inconvenient things like, well, the facts. And it seems as though our Pharisees operated in that, in that latter manner. They, they dig in their heels and they badger the healed man and anybody who can bear witness to his healing, and they keep getting the wrong answers. And then finally, in frustration, they declare that the healed man is a sinner, and they literally drive him away, out of sight, out of mind. It never happened. Nope. Well, later Jesus calls the healed man to follow him. And the healed man confesses that Jesus is Lord. And then Jesus tells the gathered crowd that he's come to bring sight to the blind and that those who refuse to admit their blindness are condemned to stay that way. And some of the Pharisees break ranks, it seems. And in what I prefer to hear as a forlorn manner, ask, surely we're not blind, are we? But Jesus cuts them no slack. If you were blind... If you knew no better, if you couldn't see with your own eyes what God is up to, then your rejection of the facts would be excusable. But since you claim to know better, you're condemned. So that's the background against which Jesus launches into this teaching about gates and sheeps and thieves. And just beyond where our text ends today, uh, the Good Shepherd, the background of impending judgment against the religious leaders of the day, people who ought to know better but don't, people who refuse to admit that they're in need of healing, people who claim to speak for God but are in fact just repeating the same old tired phrases and pounding square pegs into the same old round holes. Pity the Pharisees, standing on the wrong side of history and capable of discerning the truth of what God was up to in Jesus Christ. Specialists in the small things, guardians of the proper way of being, protectors of the faith, the tradition, the culture. And there was a time when their work was essential to the maintaining of Jewish identity, to holding the people together in one empire after another as they threatened to tear that identity apart or worse, to swallow it whole and, and make it empire's own. Now hopelessly entangled in the latest empire, and its version of Judaism, one that was dominated by elites and sellouts and lackeys of Rome, a hard place to be, especially if you've staked your whole life and even your faith on a particular understanding of how God works in the world and who God blesses and the extent of God's loving intentions and the manner in which God plans to redeem the world. 
Blinded, in other words, in precisely the way that we are so often blinded, by claims to power, by biblical authority, by prosperity and material success, by our independence, by self-sufficiency, blinded by all the walls that we build in order to protect ourselves from things which don't make sense to us, blinded by the benefits of empire, the arrogance of moral rectitude, and the fear that insists that we are always right and have to be right all the time, blinded by the lies we whisper to ourselves as we fall asleep each night and the lies that we teach our children to believe so that they won't stray in any way which calls our way of being into question, blinded in short by the assumption that we know all we need to know and so can chart our own course and steer our own cart and move precisely from earth to heaven with no help needed, not even from God, who we claim has already finished God's part of the story. We have the plan, and all we need to do is follow it. Poor Pharisees, so sure, so blind, so lost, so in need of a good shepherd, wandering through the valley of the shadow of death and believing themselves to be on the high road to glory. The wonder of it is that the shepherd keeps on following them, pursuing them, seeking every last, lost, blind, foolish Pharisee, goodness and mercy hot on their trail, speaking and speaking and speaking until they finally hear that voice that they refuse to recognize for so long until they finally hear that voice and know it to be God's own voice and calling their name. But I get ahead of myself. Jesus is the gate through which the sheep enter and so find rest, healing, security, and all the grass and water they can eat and drink. Uh, The gate to salvation, in other words. They enter through the Jesus gate and they are redeemed. And we human beings are sheep, not the most flattering metaphor. Um, Sheep, or so I've heard, are not the smartest animals on four legs, prone to wander, incapable of telling the good grass from the harmful weeds, lacking any internal GPS that would make it possible for them to get home safely. Not the most flattering metaphor at all, but but the point of the comparison is not that human beings are slow-witted, though I suppose the proof is in the pudding. Um, No, the point is that sheep are pretty much entirely dependent, pretty much entirely dependent upon the good care of the shepherd, on the quality and strength of the gate, if you'll allow me to pile up some metaphors, too. Sheep cannot survive on their own. They may not know that, probably don't. They may think that the grass just over the next ridge is better and tastier and that they can jolly well head off there on their own and find their own still waters and green pastures, but they cannot, not really. Maybe for a little while, just long enough to kid themselves into believing that they really are independent, that they really do know everything they need to know, um, that they really are self-sufficient, but... In the end, in the end, an entirely predictable disaster happens. Poor sheep. Pity the sheep. Too foolish to know that they can't see. Too foolish to know that they are lost. See, see, the empire tells the sheep that they have it all together. They're smart and beautiful and self-possessed. The empire tells sheep that they don't need a shepherd. Or if they do, it's one that they can purchase online. 
one that they can program to take them to green pastures and still waters, one that will clear the field of anything harmful and preparing the table for their pleasure. The empire tells sheep that they really don't have any obligation at all to listen or to think or to discern or to seek after. Everything's given. Everything is well tended. Really all the sheep need to do is close their eyes and keep chewing at that patch of grass just in front of them and everything will be just fine. See, there's your thief. There's your bandit. Not those poor muddled Pharisees who are wondering if maybe they're blind after all. Or not even those straight-up blind Pharisees still stumbling around and flailing out against anything that seems to be standing in their way. The, the Pharisees are misguided, yes. Blind, yes. In peril of their very lives, yes. But they're not the thieves of the bandits. Now, they might be unsuspecting uh, servants of the thieves and bandits. That's possible. They, they might be responsible for giving the thieves and bandits a theological toehold, making it easier for them to hop the fence and threaten the sheep. That's possible too, but, but ultimately I, I think the Pharisees are really just like the rest of us, foolish, overconfident, in denial, and ultimately afraid. A thief is the empire, the bandit is the empire. Now, I know you're probably getting tired of this little soapbox of mine, tired of beating the empire drum, anti-empire drum, I should say, but um, if you will, please give me just another minute here. Because it's all a question of where we place our lives. It's, it's really just that simple. Who owns us? Jesus or the empire? Who saves us? Jesus or the empire? Who keeps us and gives us what we need to live? Jesus or the empire? Or in the language of John 10, who is the gate to salvation? Is it Jesus or is it the empire? Through whom must we go to find salvation, Jesus or the empire? The empire is a vague old beast, I know. So let's just accept that and, and say that the empire is shorthand for any other ultimate claim on our lives. So nationalism is a form of empire. Capitalism is a form of empire. Materialism is a form of empire. Consumerism is a form of empire. The military-industrial complex is a form of empire. Institutional religion is a form of empire insofar as it sets and defends its own boundaries and tries to hold on to its own power at all costs. Those things, those isms, those entities, those principalities and powers that make ultimate claims on us or make ultimate claims about themselves, they are all forms of empire. As such, they make promises they cannot keep. They seek to maintain and to defend themselves at all costs. They favor the rich over the poor, the strong over the weak, and yet insist upon their own neutrality. They demand allegiance. They offer security in exchange for that allegiance. They are in every way thieves and bandits, impostors, false messiahs, false gods. I'm being pretty stark here, I know. Pretty hard on the old empire. We do have to live here after all. But listen again to Jesus. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, that we might have life and have it abundantly. There are two masters, two claims on our lives, two forms of subservience. And one, Jesus says, leads always to death and destruction. And the other leads always to abundant life. That's pretty stark. 
life and death. Which will we choose? We'll choose life, the good book says. Choose life. Yes, we do live here in the midst of empire. God's children always have. From Genesis to Revelation, from the days of Jesus to today, God's children have always lived in the midst of empire. And empire, I believe, always ends in death. And so our task, I think, is to learn how to abide in the empire while giving our allegiance only and always to God, to resist the pull of thieves, the temptations of bandits, the various allurements of this world, and listen only to the voice of the shepherd who knows us and loves us and calls us by name. Now, the way we do that, I think, sisters and brothers, the way we do that is by gathering here in this particular sheepfold each week and telling ourselves the truth. Not the capital T truth, because that can so often be just one more snare set for us by the thieves and the band that's making us blind to our own arrogance and so hopelessly lost like those poor Pharisees doing their best to resist the miracle happening right in front of them because it threatened their own capital T truth. The capital T truth is out there. But I think our claim on it must always be humble and even tentative, not grasping and clinging and and so turning it into a wall or a weapon to use against our opponents. No, the truth we tell each other, I think, is not about our dogma or our theology or what we believe, but instead about who we belong to, who it is who saves us, why it's necessary to remember and to say those things over and over and over again. We look for signs of God's presence in us and among us and around us and bear witness to what we see and hear and invite our sisters and brothers to see and hear it too. And so help us all, help each other learn how to tell gifts from God from the enticements of empire. We admit to ourselves and to each other. We admit to ourselves and to each other that we cannot be faithful on our own, that we cannot make the journey alone, that we are sheep-like in our utter dependence on the strong hand and the loving heart of the Good Shepherd. And that last bit may be the most important of all because it flies in the face of everything we've learned under the empire about being strong and independent and self-sufficient and about pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and about having no obligation to anybody other than ourselves and perhaps our immediate families. Instead, here in the sheepfold, we engage in practices which encourage and foster dependency. We submit ourselves and commit ourselves to a loving community of Christian disciples, learning how to trust somebody other than ourselves to teach us how to live. We open ourselves up to sisters and brothers in Christ, and, and we give them room and the freedom to touch our brokenness. And then we reach out and touch them when they do the same thing. That, I think, is how we learn to be faithful in the empire. That's how we learn to keep ourselves safely in the care of the only shepherd who has our best interests at heart, Jesus, the good shepherd. That's how we learn to, to understand that the gate is not something to be resisted or climbed over in an effort to escape and so be free, but is in fact the way to true safety, true security, true home. It's not about gathering our weapons together and marching out through the gate to conquer the empire and beat it at its own game. It's instead about learning how to live together in love, in grace, forgiveness, and under the tender mercies of our Lord Jesus Christ.
All we like sheep. Like sheep. Lost without the shepherd. In peril without the gate. Accompanied, thanks be to God, by one who knows exactly what we need and where we need to go to get it. Preparing a table for us where we will sit with our enemies and so begin to learn how to behave in each other's presence. Anointing us with healing oil. Filling our cup until it overflows, setting goodness and mercy on our heels, protecting us from all harm, teaching us to distinguish between the voices of the thieves and the bandits and the Lord's own voice, lifting us up when we stumble, seeking us when we're lost, healing our blind eyes, sacrificing his own life for our sake. Well, in the end, despite my trepidation and the trouble I often have figuring out what in the world John's Jesus is saying. In the end, I hope after taking a few steps back and then looking again, I I think I've heard the voice of Jesus after all. Certainly not in all its nuances and subtleties, certainly not in the very deepest theological sense, but but still I'd like to think that I heard Jesus' voice speaking to us today, telling us something that We need to hear about how to be in this world without losing ourselves. Something about gates and and sheep and salvation. Good news. Good news. All we like sheep, utterly dependent upon the good and tender mercies of Jesus Christ. Those tender mercies never fail. Those tender mercies never fail. All we like sheep, the Lord will see us safely home. Amen.